0: Ashley Evans, you're an Irish Jesuit and you're back for the summer here in Ireland for a bit of a break. But your main work has been and is in Cambodia, where you've been working for over 30 years. Tell us about your work there.
1: I went out first in 1986 into the refugee camps in Thailand. To, I volunteered for two years to work with Jesuit Refugee Service. And during my time in the refugee camps, it was inside Thailand, but they were refugees from Cambodia, I learned the Khmer language. So when I finished there, it looked like there would be peace in Cambodia and the Jesuits began to prepare for a possible mission there. So then I volunteered to go back after theology for a mission in Cambodia.
0: Was the Khmer language hard? Is it a Chinese base or what route is it?
1: No, it has its own script, a bit like the Hindi script, uh, Indian script, so one letter for uh, one uh, sound. But it is easy to learn in one sense for speaking, not too difficult. It's not tonal. There are a lot of diphthongs, but it's not tonal like Thai or Vietnamese. But then once you get onto the script, it's very hard to learn how to read and write it. It takes a long time.
0: Can you do that?
1: Yes, yes, I can. I can do that now. And now with Unicode on the computer, I can type. So instead of seeing my very poor handwriting, people just see my typed script.
0: So you then decided you would stay and work on what happened then?
1: Well, when the mission started in Cambodia, the first act uh, Jesuit refugee service moved in. And they started, or we started, a technical school, vocational school for handicapped soldiers, because at that time there were huge numbers of landmine injuries, and it was possible to provide this training for soldiers who had been demobilised but were handicapped to help them learn some kind of trade or skill that they could earn their living with later in the villages. And it was very good in those days because we had soldiers from all the different factions who had formerly been enemies, and they were living and working together for one year. And when they came to our place, they lived in small little communities, cooked their own food, etc. And so they had a whole inner healing process for themselves and grew in their self-confidence and ability then to go back into the society, believing in themselves.
0: Was this post-Khmer Rouge?
1: was. This was, yes, this was post Khmer Rouge and post Vietnamese occupation. The Vietnamese overthrew the Khmer Rouge in 79.
0: And the Khmer Khmer Rouge had wiped out over 1.2 million people.
1: The Khmer Rouge, yes, they took over the country in 75 and ruled it nearly for four years until 79. And during that time, then, it was the purest communist, communist revolution in the world. All the towns had to be emptied. The people had to learn how to to plant rice and work with the peasants in the countryside. And there were no, it was collective farming, so people starved, basically. And, yes, over a, mil- a million people died during that time. But there was also a very systematic uh, political process persecution of anybody who had was educated. Anybody who was educated meant that they had ideas in their mind that had been corrupted by foreigners and so they would corrupt the ordinary Cambodian people so they had to be executed and removed. So there was a tremendous persecution of, of anybody who had been educated and then religious leaders. And then after that the second or third wave of persecution was against their own people who might be coming, uh, getting their own ideas or might be too critical of the way things were going. And so it turned in on itself in the end. And the last year of the regime was basically one part of the Khmer Rouge trying to destroy another part of the Khmer Rouge. And eventually the system, the Khmer Rouge, collapsed and the Vietnamese came in and took over the country for
0: 10 years. So this was at that time and you were working with soldiers who had fought with each other.
1: No, this was after that, because during the Vietnamese occupation, then huge numbers of Cambodians fled to the border, and there were these refugee camps all along the border with Thailand. And then during that time, the refugee service started it. And in the camps, then, these special training centers for handicapped soldiers began. And then when peace came to Cambodia and the Vietnamese moved out, then Jesuit refugee service moved in and started the same kind of work. And that was that work is still going on actually. That same technical school called Buntier Priyap, which kind of means center of the dove, is, still continues. And for the first ten years there was mostly soldiers. The second ten years say a lot of people was polio because the vaccination had stopped, so young adults had suffered from polio, so the vocational training center worked for them. And now it's working for all kinds of handicap and even people who have suffered seriously from accidents.
0: And what did you do then? Do, you didn't stay within that centre, you moved on, is that right?
1: Yes, initially I helped in that centre during my first year, but then I was uh, asked to move into the area of teacher training inside the state teacher training faculty. I could do that because my Khmer was good enough for me to be able to teach mathematics in Khmer. So and in, in the end, I was working inside the state teacher training faculty, which became the Royal University of Ph- Phnom Penh later, But that was uh, like, I was like one Jesuit there and maybe one or two people helped uh, for a few years, but it wasn't our major work. Our major work was still the vocational centre for the handicapped. And then what happened in 2000, that was like about 10 years after we started, Pope John Paul then uh, asked uh, the Jesuits to take over one church area, like a prefecture, like a diocese, a mini diocese, there's three of them in Cambodia. And so Quique Figueredo, the Spanish Jesuit, who was with me as a scholastic in the camps, became the prefect, or we call him actually the bishop of Battambang. And then the Paris foreign missionaries, they look after the other two mini dioceses in Cambodia. So there's three of those. So that changed things a lot because once the, we started that more church ministerial work, looking after parishes, faith formation of the young Cambodians, etc., then Asian Jesuit priests started coming. And so uh, the slow transition from, from being a European-style Jesuit work, it became an Asian-style Jesuit work over the next 10 years.
0: How many Catholics are there in Cambodia and what is the majority religion?
1: And there'd be about, say, 40,000 Catholics maximum over a population of 15 million. So it's tiny, and then most of the population, maybe 95% are Buddhist, Buddhist, uh, small vehicle Buddhism. That would mean every village would have its pagoda where the monks live and were supported by the local village population. And then the monks would go and visit the houses for blessings and do funerals, etc., etc. et cetera.
0: Did you work with them? I mean, when Pope John Paul II asked you to take over in a parish, like were you just looking after the Catholics of that area or did you work with everybody and with the Buddhist monks?
1: There were many programs where there were uh, Buddhists and Christians together. Any educational program or kindergarten school or youth activity will have Catholics and Buddhists mixed together quite happily. There's no problem there. But then on the more explicit faith formation, communion preparation, confirmation Confirmation preparation—that's that'll be simply for Catholics. But there's a huge effort by the Church and also by the Buddhist and Muslims to do actions, social actions together. So there's a big effort to visit the prisons, for example, and support prisoners together from the interreligious. Uh, collaboration movement. And right. the Cambodian government actually supports this.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you that. W- w- the Khmer Rouge were communist and radically communist, as you've said. The Vietnamese pulled out. Who took over and what kind of a government was it?
1: Well, you remember I was explaining that inside the Khmer Rouge, it's sort of split into two groups at the end. One group of the Khmer Rouge fled to Vietnam in order to avoid Pol Pot's group. And in the end, in two, uh, they fled in 77. They fled in 77 and went to Vietnam. Then in 79, they came back with the Vietnamese and overthrew the uh, Khmer Rouge regime and Pol Pot regime. And so the Vietnamese uh, supported these old Khmer Rouge cad in power. And so you had the, what they call the Heng Samrin. Mr. Heng Samrin was the leader of that faction, he was a Cambodian. The Vietnamese army invaded Cambodia and they put Vietnamese advisors everywhere. But they were slowly hoping to train the Cambodians to become a kind of a legitimate puppet regime. And so the Cambodians gradually took charge and Mr Hun Sen at that time was the Minister for Foreign Affairs. And they He's were, now,
0: the Prime Minister. now the Prime
1: Minister. Yes, he became Prime Minister very shortly after that. They made a peace agreement with the other three factions. There were three factions fighting this regime. The three factions fighting this Vietnamese backed Heng regime were one, the Prince Sihanouk, the royalist faction, they had a camp in Thailand, Site B. Two was a republican faction led by Sun San. They were in Site 2. That's the camp I was in, or we were all in. There was another, the third group, was the Khmer Rouge themselves. They also fled uh, Cambodia, but they set up a camp in Thailand called Site 8. And those three actually collaborated together to form a provisional opposition government outside Cambodia. And they held the seat The United Nations seat for Cambodia, they held it for 10 years and the Khmer Rouge were an integral part of that alliance.
0: So they were all working together then and they tolerated religions like, well, if Buddhism is considered a religion, but certainly Christians were allowed to be there and practice and you were allowed to be there and work with them.
1: Once the peace agreement was reached, it became possible for NGOs to move into Cambodia and start working And the government, the new government, had very clearly a welcoming attitude to all types of NGOs. The government recognized that each of the three religious communities, the Buddhist, Muslim and Christian communities, had been persecuted during the Khmer Rouge regime and allowed them to return to their properties, their pagodas, their temples and their churches and build them up again. And so in that sense, the church was welcomed back.
0: So you were working in that situation, you moved then from the academic, teaching maths. What happened after that?
1: The truth is I stayed in that university for 20 years. I taught mathematics and then philosophy in there, in the Royal University of Phnom Penh for 20 years. So I have no, uh, nearly every high school in the country will have some, either math maths teachers or civics teachers that um, I have, I know from the university. And then after 20 years, the Jesuits, we had a huge apostolate in the social apostolate with this vocational training centre and all the offspring, a rural development programme done in collaboration with the Providence Sisters, and then the church apostolate. But we hadn't done anything significant in the education area, and we wanted to. And after three years of discernment and planning, we decided we'd set up, in a remote, poor area of Cambodia, our own educational institution. And so they asked me to direct that for four years to
0: set it up. And, and how, what did you have to do to do that? I mean, presumably, if it is poor, the locals wouldn't have had much money or means of creating an institution like that, a new school.
1: No, so the first step was to really collaborate with the local government officials to find out if they were uh, on board for an NGO, what we would call an NGO school. And so they were very enthusiastic. We got great cooperation from the people of the Bonti Imunjai province, because there's very few NGOs working there. Uh, Our NGO had been there already for a long time, helping families of uh, handicapped people in remote areas. Um, So we just built on that good relationships we'd established. Then the next thing was to to find a piece of land that was available and um, in a good, reasonable location. And once we got the collaboration of the local officials, a small Cambodian team in sight, they're ready to go. We just started. We started with the kindergarten and then it went to primary and now it's secondary.
0: And I know you sent newsletters back Mm. from there and the photographs are wonderful. And it looks like the local population have embraced it with enthusiasm. How many pupils have you got there now?
1: There's about be about 500 young people involved there now.
0: Would that be free education for them?
1: It's f- free education in the sense that there's no fees. But there is what we call family contributions. We ask for a family contribution so that everybody is contributing a little. Even if they're going to the local state schools, there's all these extra little charges that they have to pay. And so uh, this is enough for us to have some income. But the real point of this educational project is that our discernment process wanted us to have four components. So Community Learning Centre is different. Community Learning Centre to help young people who are dropping out of school, going to Thailand. Hundreds of thousands of them going to Thailand every year. There's maybe nearly 1.1 million Cambodian people working in Thailand and then sending home the salaries. So many of the kids in our area are being raised by their grandparents. Their parents are away working. So it's to have a community learning centre to help the young people have some skills before they go to Thailand, primary school, secondary school. But there are only three components. The fourth component was a teacher resource centre. So we really hope that our pedagogy will spread and that other schools will see that it's very easy to change your pedagogical style. And if you do move away from rote learning to using your imagination, critical thinking, reasoning in a creative way, you the, the fruits in the terms of the young people's education, will be huge.
0: Has it gone through into the teenage years that you've been able to see? Is that happening? Are there people going to university? Can you see that critical thinking taking place?
1: Not yet, because we really were only on the level of second year or secondary school now. So it will be a while before we see the, the results of this coming through. But already we, you can have an intimation of it because the students are proactive and they're already uh, planning and running small initiatives in their own village Coming back together then to reflect on what worked and what didn't work. Uh, so uh, it's looking very hopeful that there will be a good effect.
0: Is also, it an Ignatian pedagogy then? It's based on reflection, examine, the revision de vie?
1: Oh, yes, we have very strong emphasis on the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm. And in fact, in the Jesuit Conference of Asia Pacific, I was a representative on that education conference for all the Jesuit secondary and primary schools of. Asia-Pacific. And uh, the Filipinos have organized a program of training for teachers in Jesuit schools so that they can understand and implement the Ignatian pedagogy. And what's fascinating for us is to see that the young teachers with the Buddhist background, which emphasizes reflection and analysis already, are really able to catch on to this pedagogy and put it into action.
0: Because it's reflection and analysis as well, isn't it? Yes. And... I'm thinking what strikes me listening to you is the support that the government has given for this. And yet when one reads about Cambodia now and you mentioned Hun Sen, the reports just very recently from Human Rights Watch is that this is turning into a military dictatorship and that there's a clampdown on journalists, on media, all the signs of a return to the bad old days are worryingly emerging. Is that the truth or what's happening there?
1: There's lots of ups and downs in the Cambodian history and every time there's an election things get more tense. It is certainly true that the Cambodian People's Party, the CPP, which is the main uh, socialist party governing Cambodia at the moment, has people at every level of society In the health service and in the education service. So they're basically uh, running the country. But many of those officials are not corrupt and are genuinely concerned for the people they are serving. For example, in the area where we are, we've had very good community representatives and the local village leader, the local commune chief, very helpful to us, and never once asking us for a bribe or for a contribution, nothing like that. But in other parts of the country, it's not like that. So it's not uniform. What is true is that after the local elections last year, when the opposition party, the Coalition for National Reconciliation, won nearly 40% of the vote and a large amount of communes, there was a strong reaction from the CPP leaders to this event. Actually, the people accepted it. People accepted the result. Even the CPP people accepted that this is what has happened. But the leaders reacted very negatively. And then slowly, first thing was the Cambodia Daily, a newspaper in English that had been publishing for nearly 17 years, suddenly receive a huge tax bill that they can't pay and have to close down. Two radio stations. Okay, the radio stations may be sponsored by American funds, but in Khmer language, Khmer language, closed down. So independent, critical voices disappearing You had the political assassination of a very senior Khmer analyst called Mr. Kim Lai, shot in broad daylight. We haven't seen political assassinations for a couple of years. That happened in July 2016, I think. And that was already a sign that uh, things were getting uh, tense again. And now at the present moment, it's certainly uh, politically a very tense time. Though all the opposition party have been... Has been disbanded, and many of the leaders, especially the chief, one of the chief leaders, Kim Sokha, is in jail on charges of treason. Facebook pages are watched. Any damage to a billboard can be termed as an act of treason. Anything you say about the king has to be very carefully monitored, etc., etc. So it's a repressive atmosphere now.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds like it and and reports coming from there. There are elections in July, but you would be hardly hopeful that those are going to be fair elections, given that that's the state of play and the main opposition leaders in prison. Are people scared?
1: Cambodian people are scared, yes, but they're used to this kind of political tension and pressure. They've been through it for a long time. And maybe older generations, their reaction in times of political pressure is vote for what's safe and secure. The CPP party has brought peace to Cambodia. They're looking after us. The country is developing economically. Okay, let's stay with them. That will be the reaction generally of older people. But the younger people, in general, of course there'll only be exceptions, but the younger people now are fed up with this old style power, authority, and they are looking for a change, a more open society, open to the outside world, respect for law. With a separation of powers so that the judges and courts are independent of political influence. These kind of ideas, which were completely strange maybe 10 years ago, now are what uh, people, young people actually want.
0: And are they mobilising or are they afraid?
1: Generally I'd say the students are still afraid. University students, school students, They're very, in our terms, if you look from our our society point of view, they'd be passive. The ones that are really active are the factory workers. They've been uh, out protesting for improved conditions for themselves and then indirectly for improved conditions for everybody else for many years. But a few years ago, there was very big protests about um, election results and factory workers were all involved. And then there was some elite army unit opened fire and maybe 14 people were killed. After that, there hasn't been any more mass protests.
0: So there is a bit of terrorising of people going on. It's in other countries, sometimes when something like that happens, people take to the streets in mass protest. We've seen it in the Arab Spring as well, people protesting, and then it all goes terribly, badly wrong. Do you think that there's still a vivid memory of the utter horror of what the Khmer Rouge visited on people and that they've tasted a bit of what is better and maybe are terrified about going back to those kind of days, particularly since Sen seems to be putting in place all the types of strictures and, and rigours that creates that kind of terror state again.
1: There was a documentary about Cambodia made by an Irish uh, filmmaker, called uh, Cambodian Spring it only came out there this year I went to see it in the Irish Film Institute and there was a Buddhist monk uh, activist monk called Luan Sovat who spoke at that uh, lunch and that documentary captures very well the atmosphere among Cambodian activists people campaigning for land rights for their own houses that are being pushed off the land in the city of Phnom Penh and in the remote country areas and you can see then the story, The documentary follows the story of the individual activists. And the tragedy is that in their story of trying to resist this uh, political oppression and land grabbing by powerful people, and they resist well with using social media, etc. In the end, they begin to divide up among themselves and become uh, conflicted among themselves and then bitter and then violent towards each other. And that is so true, in fact, of Cambodian society. It's very hard to make a collective effort to fight for justice or uh, political freedom or press freedom or democracy with your uh, friends and neighbours because you're always afraid that somebody will betray you. Mm. And this goes back to the Khmer Rouge. They had spies all the time reporting on this person, reporting on that person. Even your own family members could be reporting on you and then you'd end up being accused of something and being taken away to prison and in the end being executed.
0: And tortured as well because we read about the awful torture chambers in those prisons is it um is there much poverty what's the the situation like vis-a-vis say somewhere like ireland is it other middle class upper class and then poorer people or what
1: oh there's still tremendous poverty in cambodia desperate poverty in the countryside remote countryside but then also in urban areas there's no social security system so people have to survive on whatever money comes into the family so in irish terms there's still desperate poverty everywhere in cambodia but if you look over the last 20 years, it's a huge improvement to when I went there first. When I went there first, people were starving in the street. When the AIDS epidemic came, the people just lying on the pavement, dying on the pavement, you know. Uh, that's You don't see that anymore. But it's not that far. Uh, it hasn't developed that much in the sense that there is a middle class emerging now able to buy their own houses, have their own motorbikes. The very rich people have their own car, cars. So the middle class is increasing. The standard of living, even in the countryside, is improving a little bit. But there's still uh, desperate poverty everywhere in Cambodia. It's not gone.
0: And somebody like Hun Sen then, who is in power, would he be ideologically driven? I mean, does he have a political vision for his society or is it a case of too long in power look after myself. Uh,
1: You have to understand that the Cambodian People's Party is uh, genuinely a communist party in origin and now a socialist party. So while Mr Hun Sen seems to be becoming a dictator, he doesn't have absolute power. There are many other groups within the CPP party who do not follow his line. And so you'll have different factions. Now his faction would not be the biggest faction But what he has done is he has created his own special army unit, bodyguard unit. He only has about 3,000 soldiers in it. And that is his core, sort of Praetorian Guard, if you like. And it's those people and through those people that he is able to maintain power. And the other factions in the CPP have not yet reached the stage where they say enough is enough.
0: But they might do.
1: That's the thing, they might do. And the question is, when and how? And this is why sometimes the opposition, from an outside observer, you'd say, well, the opposition party is also a bit extreme in the sense that it doesn't build bridges with the more moderate elements in the CPP or make compromises here and there so that the political will for a change would spread to everyone. It becomes personalised opposition and then very extreme both sides very quickly.
0: And that opposition party, left, right, where?
1: The opposition party, well, this, inside this opposition party, there are two main parties who combine together. One is the Summer and Sea Party. So that would be like financial austerity, uh, more, not a terribly right wing, but very clear economic policies, pro Cambodian, not so enthusiastic about the Vietnamese immigrants. And that would have had a strong following minority following in Cambodia. And then the other party is the Human Rights Party, which came out from a human rights organisation, which would be much more into letting the people express themselves, finding common solutions. So more like a a Labour Party, if you like, or a a local Sinn Féin party, but they would not be ideologically anti-Vietnamese in any way, or not in a very strong way.
0: What are the natural resources that the country of Cambodia have that might help them to build up and be a successful country with eradicating poverty as far as possible?
1: First is their agriculture. They have top quality jasmine rice, which Thai merchants used to sell as Thai rice, but in fact it's Khmer, Cambodian rice. Now the Cambodians are taking control of their own rice market and beginning to export. They have f- uh, fruits, fish, all kinds of, which could be processed. Nuts, coffee, which they could sell very easily. Then there's the tourism at Simriap. They have this massive system of beautiful old temples since the Middle Ages. And many tourists come there and spend a lot of money in Simriap. And now the third main thing would be their factories, garment factories outside Phnom Penh. Huge circle of factories, cheap labour and good quality goods for export to Europe and America.
0: I note um, that you said you probably know all the maths teachers and uh, educationalists, yeah, book, in, yes. in each school in Cambodia. So it's not a huge country then. In terms of Ireland, what size?
1: It's about territorially. It's about five times the size of Ireland, I would say. But then it's only got three times the population.
0: And what are the people like? Do you like them?
1: The people. If you look for Cambodians in Asia, they would like be jokers the jokers of Asia they've got a terrific sense of humor of the ridiculous their famous comedian old fellow from before Khmer Rouge time and you can look and you can see similarities between him and Charlie Chaplin they have their own music and dance tradition which they guard ferociously they argue very cogently that any Thai dance classical or, mo- or modern that you see is actually has its roots in the Cambodian culture they are also very proud of their opera Khmer opera their puppet dance and then also a young Cambodian modern dance are very influenced by Korean pop obviously and then pop music in India but they have their own stars who have a huge following among the young people in Cambodia
0: And you're there do you regard it as home? What's it like for you as an Irish Jesuit in Cambodia? How do you feel about it?
1: <laughs> you could say it's like a second home you know you can't get away from the fact that you're always going to be a foreigner you always kind of stick out in, in their society no matter... No matter how well you no speak the language. How, no matter how well you speak the language. The time I got closest to the Cambodian students was one year. We had to move out of the parish for some reason and we hadn't got our new building for the student centre so we had to rent this uh, these cheap accommodation in the city. So I had to live with 10 students in this one apartment, you know, it, so there's no rooms, there's no beds. You sleep on the floor. We had one bathroom for the whole lot of us. And um, then uh, all the, the girls were on the other side of the building in another apartment. And during that year then, I really lived with the Cambodians and learned a lot from the young Cambodians. They shared a lot during that year. That was really the year when I really understood better the Cambodia from the inside, because in fact, they were welcoming into their lives. So you can become, yes, you can become part of their lives and close to their culture and friends, but you're still a foreigner, can't get away from it.
0: And what key insight did you get in that year? What would you come away saying? You know, I never knew that before, but now I realise.
1: That the Cambodians will share with you at one level, at table level, and they seem very polite and seem to get on very well together. And so you'd come away thinking, this is a wonderful place, this is wonderful people, they're wonderfully peaceful, they've resolved all the conflicts. But the truth is that this is a very significant skill that they have. And the reality is that the conflicts are still there between themselves, buried, and only after a long time will they be able to open up and share them with you. And so if, from when they look on Westerners who who speak to each other in not a very polite manner, they think we're terribly uncultured. We haven't even learned the basics. For them, that's basic politeness and uh, care for each other, seeming care for each other, and not allowing the conflicts to be visible.
0: And I suppose it's understandable in a way because that wound must be very deep, what they went through, even under the Khmer Rouge, where whole swathe of the population intellectuals like what was done to them teachers it was an awful thing for a country to have to experience
1: that's true but the young people growing up now they don't have direct experience of that they have indirect experience in the sense that their aunties or uncles might be missing or the grandparents might make a reference to this or that we don't talk explicitly about it even I can tell you the first time we had a students coming from the countryside to Phnom Penh and we brought them to see the Khmer Rouge uh, prison which is now a museum in Phnom Penh they were shocked, this is Vietnamese propaganda this didn't happen in Cambodia they didn't realise themselves the extent of of the cruelty, the torture or the systematic nature of the Khmer Rouge regime and so it's only indirectly that they're assimilating but what what is true is this shadow of things can always get worse, things can go wrong very quickly and that's like a <clears throat> unexpressed fear that sort of cuts across all Cambodian youth mm. and maybe explains why they're so reluctant to get politically involved now.
0: Finally, I say, are you hopeful for the future?
1: Yes, I have great hope for the future because I've seen the transformation in young people in Cambodia, the extent of enthusiasm, dynamism hope for the future even though there's tremendous fear there is now a much clearer awareness that we want to move forward and get out of this terrible autocratic old-fashioned regime
0: and do you feel you're part of it in that education in that school that you've set up after three years of discernment with other people well that's why we're there and that's why i'm glad to be going back you know yeah